Hello, and welcome to Turn On The Lights. I'm Jade Armate. And I'm Don Berwick. With Turn On The Lights, we put a spotlight on ways to improve the healthcare system in the U.S. Thanks for listening. About 20 years ago, in the year 2000 to be exact, there was a turning point in our nation's understanding of how safe healthcare is. Most people thought then, and most probably still think, that care is 100% safe. But healthcare is not safe. And the lights got turned on about that in the year 2000 by a stunning report from the National Academy of Medicine. The report was called To Air is Human. And it came from a study of thousands of research papers which concluded that injuries to patients from healthcare, the healthcare that was supposed to help them, injuries from errors and complications that were largely avoidable were very common. Indeed, something between 3% and as much as 10% of patients in hospitals, for example, suffered a significant injury, like a hospital-acquired infection or a medication error or an avoidable surgical complication or maybe pneumonia from a ventilator machine or a pressure sore on their skin, and many died from those injuries. Extrapolating from a famous review of over 30,000 hospital records in New York State from 1984, which was called the Harvard Medical Practice Study, the report to Eras Human estimated that between 44,000 and 98,000 Americans lost their life every year in hospitals from mistakes in their care. It also estimated that at least a third of those deaths and probably more, were preventable. That worked out to the equivalent of two jumbo jets crashing every three days. The report to Eris Human kicked off a decade-long wave of projects and programs in American hospitals, and indeed around the world, to try to make healthcare safer. Did it work? Well, not so much. Just a few weeks ago, a team at Harvard Medical School published a study based on almost 3,000 hospital records from 2018, 34 years after the Harvard Medical Practice Study, and they found that the rates of medical injuries and unsafe care were just about the same, maybe even a little higher than in 1984. Their study shows that the patient safety movement has stalled. For the most part today, you're no safer in a hospital bed than you would have been more than three decades ago. Why would that be, Don? To Eris Human asserted that medical errors were killing more Americans each year than breast cancer or motor vehicle accidents. And yet, 30 years later, no progress. To help us understand this embarrassing fact and what can be done about it, we have asked Sue Sheridan to join us today. Sue is an absolute legend in the patient safety community. She herself has had tragic personal experiences of patient safety in her own family. And she has converted that tragedy into an iron will that is driving all of us to change. She is a founder and a global leader of Patients for Patient Safety here in the U.S. Sue, welcome to Turn On The Lights. My pleasure to be here. Sue, why don't we start with your story? I know a bit about it. It's very compelling. So who are you? Where do you come from? And what got you into trying to help? Again, my name is Sue Sheridan. I'm from Boise, Idaho. Actually, I live up in the mountains now in Idaho. And what brings me here is actually my profession was international trade finance banking, working in a very 
disciplined profession. And then my late husband and I had my son, Cal, who was born a healthy, normal newborn. But within five days, Cal suffered brain damage, permanent brain damage from a condition known as kernicterus that is simply brain damage from newborn jaundice. And we actually watched Cal suffer brain damage in the hospital before our eyes. And quite frankly, that will haunt me forever. But what I saw as a mom, first of all, I was never informed that jaundice could cause brain damage. There were tests that could have taken place, but never took place. The healthcare providers were relying on visual assessment, which at that time was fairly normal. And so Cal fell through several layers of the healthcare system and suffered brain damage. Now, we were told he was a well baby. We didn't learn of his brain damage until 16 months later when he was finally diagnosed by out-of-state team of doctors at a university. During those 16 months, it was uh, brutal for my husband and I because Cal was not developing normally. We kept going back to the same doctors that treated him in the hospital. And it was hard to learn the truth from other doctors in another state what had happened to Cal. Cal now is 27. He's a comedian. Despite the fact that he's very speech impaired, physically impaired, he is bright. He's funny. He's courageous. He's teaching me a lot about the disability world and being courageous. Four years later, after Pat, after Cal's harm in the healthcare system, Pat had a pain in his neck and uh, we went to our local doctor in Boise, Idaho. They did an MR and discovered a mass in his neck. We went to one of the best surgeons in the nation in Arizona that removed it beautifully. And we were told it was a benign tumor, very common in middle-aged men, I understood. And uh, six months later, the pain came back. And so we returned to the physician and they did an MR and they found out that the tumor had returned. It was the size of the surgeon's fist. So they removed the tumor immediately and they shared with me that this time it was a sarcoma, a high-grade synovial cell sarcoma. And that didn't really make sense to me because I I wasn't that informed about cancer, but we were led to believe that a benign tumor became cancerous. Many doctors that unrelated to Pat's case came through Pat's room asking us why we didn't get treatment at the first surgery. And we said, because it was a benign tumor. After the third doctor, I went down to medical records and I checked out my husband's records. And I found the first pathology of his first surgery that was actually transcribed 23 days after we were discharged. And it was fight as a synovial cell chroma back then. And that information never got communicated to us or the doctor. We were discharged with absolutely no explanation of the medical error. We were discharged believing that this became cancer, that we needed aggressive treatment immediately. And so it was shocking to realize that the the truth had been obscured and that we are really pretty much left on our own to get treatment. And so we went to MD Anderson and with fantastic care. They did everything they could do to save Pat's life. He had seven surgeries. He became disabled as well. Chemotherapy, radiation, but they couldn't save his life because during the six months of non-treatment, it had actually penetrated his spinal cord. So at 45, Pat died. Cal was six. And during that time, we miraculously had a little baby, Mackenzie, who is now 25. So I would, coming from a very disciplined professional profession in banking, I thought that there were, I thought there was somebody in charge of patient safety. I thought there were safeguards and standards and rules that hospitals and doctors had to follow. And I learned pretty much to my astonishment that no one was in charge of patient safety. Sue, first, I'm so sorry about what happened. I've met Cal, I've met Mackenzie. You've got remarkable kids there, but that you would have to go through this just tears my heart and just got to do something about it. And thanks for 
thanks for sharing the story, but the American healthcare system let you down big time, not once, but twice with errors in care. Now, to continue your story, you've taken that tragedy and converted it into really a career, as far as I can see, for a long time now. You've been one of the most eloquent voices in the world for getting something done about this. Do you want to say a little more about that? Sure. After witnessing your first newborn suffering brain damage in your arms and knowing that it was preventable, and then being with your husband at 45 and dying from something that was preventable, his cancer wasn't preventable, but it was had it been caught early, it was very treatable. And just witnessing that, it, it, it the fire in my belly was, well, at first I didn't have a fire in my belly. At first I grieved profoundly. I don't talk about that much. It's, I know what it's like to hit rock bottom. And I did. Um, but I was a mom and a wife and we had another baby and I had to be present for that. And so I really had to visit my soul. And I remember the day I visited my soul and I asked myself, what was I going to do? Was I going to curl up and mourn and grieve and be angry the rest of my life? Or was I going to come out swinging? (laughs) And I decided that I couldn't, I couldn't not go forward and try to make change because what I saw was wrong and I needed it personally to heal. I needed to know that this mattered to the healthcare system. So, so I, did you, yeah. how did you take this moment? And you mentioned this, if there's a moment you can remember, yeah. but how did you find the community? And, and you learned, I think a lot about what was happening, not just to you and your family, but to so many others. So exactly. Exactly. It started when just, I had to educate myself about the healthcare system, which believe me was hard to figure out. And I started writing letters. I wrote a letter to the Joint Commission. I wrote letters to the AMA, AJ. I wrote the letter back then. It was called HICFA, now CMS. I wrote letters to everybody I could, and no one responded. And these are the. This is the just for our audience's benefit. This is the American Medical Association, the American Hospital Association, the associations that govern the medical profession and the hospital industry. HICFA, or now Centers for Medicare and Medicaid, the biggest public payer organization. These are the, this is the field of healthcare. This is the business of healthcare. You were writing to them saying, is this happening to me? Is this happening to others? What do you know? And I thought they were the entities in charge. So this was me trying to make sense of our healthcare system. And I educated myself through the media, actually. It was a publication in the USA Today, written by Julie Appleby, that described the relationship between HIPFA the Joint Commission, of who, of course, I had never heard of, um, who accredits hospitals, and the OIG. They described this relationship. And so that's why I started writing letters. And when I wrote to them, I said, this is what happened to both my husband and my child, and that I want to be part of the solution. I wanted them to understand what happened. And then to that I could work with them to tell the full story because I saw the full arc where nobody else did. But you got nothing back from them. So. I got nothing back. So having been educated about our system, I wrote to the Office of Inspector General and they responded. And the Office of Inspector General is it's a government organization that oversees and evaluates our federal agencies in charge of healthcare. I wrote to them. They immediately called me, which was so gratifying. And they shared with me that this was very concerning, that the healthcare system was not responding to me. 
So they made me aware quietly that there was going to be a a summit, the first national summit on patient safety and medical errors that was hosted by the Agency of Healthcare Research and Quality, which is the premier government entity that is charged with doing research, and in this case, around patient safety. So I submitted a request to testify, and I was invited by this agency who I had never heard of. Frankly, I would have crawled there on my hands and knees from Idaho to Washington, D.C. to tell my story, but they they flew me out to D.C. It was the first time that I had ever publicly spoken. I was really scared, but they gave me five minutes to tell the story of Cal and Pat, which was the first time I did publicly. And it was very empowering because I remember the audience gave me a standing ovation. And for the first time, it felt like it mattered what happened to my family because everything else was deny, defend. The hospitals involved in my family's care would not speak to us. They closed the doors on us. We were left entirely on our own, Um, not only to deal with the emotions, but the financially. Financially, we were very harmed. When my husband died, I was $300,000 debt. So when I got to speak at HRQ, for the first time, I sensed this, there's really good people out there that would want to do something about this. What year was this? That was 2000 with John Eisenberg. And the re- the office of, in- of inspector, he was the head of the agency. He was the head and he was the one who invited me, one of my heroes. And when I testified, the office of inspector general was quietly in the audience. And so was USA Today with the journalists that I had, who, who really taught me about our healthcare system. And about 10 days after my testimony, there was a front page article on both Cal and Pat on of USA Today. So that catapulted me into another world. Cal's story was very prominent. And what was amazing is that readers read that article and they contacted USA Today and say, that happened to my son or that happened to my daughter, that their babies suffered brain damage from jaundice, which was alarming because when Cal was diagnosed by a team of experts, they said he was the only known case of cronicterus in the United States because it is rare but it had never been, a case had never been reported. Cornicturus is a medical name of the collection of the, of bilirubin, the jaundice in the brain. Is that right? That's right. And what the jaundice does, which unbeknownst to me as a, a, an educated mom, and I read all the prenatal books and went out to all the classes, bilirubin or jaundice can, uh, is a toxin and it can build up in the baby's bloodstream. And if it gets to a high enough level, which it never should, it can cross what they call the blood-brain barrier, and it can damage the basal ganglia, which is in charge of how we move, the dentate nuclei, and so that Cal's enamel on his baby teeth never formed, and his ocular nuclei, or that his eyes were crossed from this brain damage. So the bilirubin, this toxin goes to three three different parts of the brain. So it creates this constellation of, of disabilities harm. And it's very treatable if it's understood early. Oh, it's very treatable. And it's very common. It's very common to have jaundice. About 70% of newborns get some level of jaundice. So this was, when Cal's harm happened, it was a perfect storm because we had just 
Congress had just approved early discharge. So instead of being in the hospital for three days or so, he was discharged at 33 hours. That was one thing. The other thing is that young doctors and nurses had never seen a case of crinicter. So they were not seeing what, what was unfolding before their eyes was not ringing bells in their head. So I, I don't want to slow you down too much, but I want to nail one thing here. So you were mother, no mother, and you knew something was wrong. There was something, the alarms were going off in, in your head. Absolutely. So just go back to that in a second. So you were yeah. trying to get attention here? Yes. Yeah. And when, when Cal was discharged at 33 hours, he the next day started to get lethargic. He kept getting more yellow and lethargic. So I called the hospital. As per they instructed me, they gave me a little handout, said, here's if you have any concerns, call this number, which I did. And I reported that he was getting really tired. He was hard to wake up even after five hours. He was getting floppy in his breastfeeding. He was a very aggressive breastfeeder at first. And then he started to just get really weak and I couldn't arouse him. When I called the hospital, the first question that the nurse asked me, was I a first time mom? And I said, I was. And, and she said, mom, this is normal for newborns to be sleepy, unwrap him and tickle his feet. Really calm down, mom. So I didn't think this was normal. They told me the baby should breastfeed every three hours and I couldn't wake up Cal after five hours. And my mom was there too. And she said, this isn't normal. And my husband and I put Cal in a car and we drove to the pediatricians. And we walked into the pediatricians with Cal and the assistant out front. We referred to him as a pumpkin baby because he was so yellow, he was turning orange. And so I got to see the pediatrician and I showed the pediatrician how Cal would just fall off my breast when I was breastfeeding, that he was getting really floppy. Again, he said, I'm more concerned about you, mom, than I am the baby. So, as you began to hear, as you went public with this, and you began to hear from other people that had experiences, not just with jaundice, but with other yeah, medical errors. Were you hearing this same kind of experience? I knew something was going on, but I couldn't get attention. It was absolutely same work. That's a common thread, not just through babies, but through patient safety. But I, when we went home with Cal, because that pediatrician said, let's wait 24 hours. He thought Cal had an ear infection. So I called the hospital, the doctor after about 10 hours and I said, I am watching my baby change before my eyes. And that still didn't trigger any kind of alarms in the doctor. And finally, my mother-in-law, who was a nurse, said, you take this baby to the hospital immediately, which we did. So what lessons would you say? This is something that others are going to see. And I, I dare say all of us on some level have a sense about whether something's wrong or not. Maybe one message that everyone can take away from this moment in this conversation is, if you see something, do something about it, as you did in this case, eventually get back to the exactly. hospital. Yeah. Yeah. We need to learn how to, and the healthcare system needs to learn how to teach us how to escalate care. Had I known, first of all, about the dangers of jaundice, had I known, we need to be informed and equipped with the right information. The information I had said, don't worry. It said nothing about brain damage, which we have changed. But had I been told, if you see this floppiness, increased yellowness, poor breastfeeding, go straight to the ER. That would have empowered me. Instead, I was like trying to navigate all these dots in the healthcare system that was unsuccessful. Mm -hmm. Had we been in the hospital, had there been a rapid response team that I could have activated 
then we need to learn how to identify the the danger signs, which we are not well-informed. Our healthcare system does not inform us about the signs of sepsis and jaundice and other things that could kill people. And if we're armed with that information, what signs to look for, who to report them to, to, and how to escalate if we don't get the right care. You said something a moment ago that I want to make sure our audience knows, which is that in many cases now, Patients and family members themselves can call a rapid response team. Not always, but in many cases, if you're in a hospital, in a care home, in an institutional environment, especially in a hospital, you can say something's not right. My family member, there's usually a number sitting at the bedside that you can call and say, I would like a rapid response team to come and show up and address my concerns, whatever they may be. Correct. Uh, and that, I think, is a big change from when you were in the hospital with Cal. Absolutely. That didn't exist at that time. Absolutely. Right. Nothing like that existed. And even when Cal did finally get back into the hospital and get admitted, they took his bilirubin, which was 34.6, was one of the highest ever recorded in the hospital, which was meaningless. It meant nothing to me because we didn't know about this. But he was in the hospital for about 24 hours and he started arching backwards. It's called opisthotonic posturing. We, it was the strangest thing to watch our child kind of curl backwards and you and I could not do it. It, Physiologically, we couldn't do it. And he started to scream with a high pitched cry, like a cat. And we were identifying again in the hospital. Whoa, what is happening with our baby? This is, we saw this as an emergency and his legs started to tremor and tremble and nothing happened. Nobody did anything. Again, we were told that newborns did funny things. They dismissed us. And we asked for a neuro consult. We asked for all kinds of help, which we did eventually get. And they did do an MRI of his brain. But the results of that were never disclosed to us. And the results clearly identified changes in the brain from hyperbilirubinemia. There are increased jaundice. There's so much to unpack here. There's so much about you, the experience to begin with, the errors, the missteps, the not listening to patients, family members, the non-disclosure of facts as they came right. to the parent over time. But let's, if we can, move the story a bit forward now to what you've done yes. since this time with the tragedy that you've had to endure. You've changed, you've taken this and it's fueled this incredible passion that I know you have for patient safety. Tell us where we are right now in the patient safety story globally or in the country. What are you seeing right now in the landscape today around patient safety? I would have to say it's it's been changing the last year. Up until about a year and a half ago, we patients, all who had experienced harm from healthcare, lost loved ones, we were watching our country deprioritize patient safety. It was disappearing from national so was, there, was there a period when you thought it was getting the attention that it deserved and then it was losing it again or what? A- absolutely. In the early 2000s, and Don, you were part of this. After I got engaged in patient safety and a group of moms, and you know that story, a group of moms, all who children had the same condition as my son, Cal, we got together with the healthcare system. So we partnered with the Joint Commission, with CDC, with HRQ, with NIH, and it took us eight years, but we uh, changed the standard of care and jaundice management. And during this time, patient safety was on fire. And Don was part of this. And our leaders were stepping up. And it was a call to action that people really rallied around. It was bold. It was raw. It was incredibly courageous. 
And it, for me to be part of that was very healing because I got to see, I got to see change. And then it started to, I would say, when I, I worked for the government, I ended up working for the government in a quasi-government entity. I started to see patient safety fall off the radar and other, other issues were getting the spotlight. Not, and not to say they weren't important issues, chronic health and the cost of care and equity and healthcare worker safety but it shouldn't be at the expense of safety. And so we saw this really, we meeting patients, patient activists, and note that I'm saying activists now instead of advocates, because I think maybe we were too nice over the past two decades. And so we band together and we said, no, we if we can do something, we need to do something. And we needed to create a collective voice. And at this time that we, we've known each other, but once we decided to all meet in the mountains of Idaho and sit around my kitchen table and say, how can we be the catalyst? At that time, the United States was ramp. It was declining around patient safety. The vibrant speeches, the conferences, the our government, our national strategies wasn't reflecting patient safety. Whereas in the world, and I'm and I had the honor of doing work with WHO. I saw WHO and the rest of the world ramping up. So while our country was kind of quiet about patient safety, so, the rest so of the world again, was uh, ramping up. Just what year are you talking about now? You said there was a surge of interest. And then when did you start to see this, this loss of momentum? The, oh, the surge, I would say, right after to air as human. And I, as a citizen... That was the, uh, was the National Academy of Medicine report in, in the year correct. 2000. They kind correct. of pulled the day together, yeah. Correct. And so when I was educating myself about patient safety, I found that report somehow and recognized that my son and husband were part of the data. And so that energized, I think, the the movement, for lack of a better word, for I would say over a decade, where it was strong, exciting, vibrant. It had energy. It had energy. And I started to see that energy, vibrancy, start to decline probably, I don't know, 20... I'm, I'm guessing 2012 early. And then I started to see fall off the radar while other things were coming on the radar. Did you just get immune to this whole phenomenon of losing hundreds of lines every every day into this phenomenon? It's crazy to me that during the pandemic, just to, to yeah. use the present example, during the pandemic today, where we sit, if you go to the New York Times or whatever CDC tally is present, today we still lose around 400 people to... COVID. Here we are, public health emergency is slated to end soon. Right. And it's it's all for the in the public consciousness awareness, COVID's over, more or less. But it's really not over. Five hundred people die a day. Has become normalized every yeah. day. And that was right. the story of patient safety, right? The story of right. is two jumbo jets falling out of the sky every single day. So is that part of why we become just totally immune to this phenomenon? Is it just we've just accepted this? The cost of doing business is that we're gonna lose a couple hundred people, several hundred people to known preventable errors in our system. I think I think it's part of it, Kadar. I think we have normalized harm in healthcare, which is chilling, absolutely chilling. That is um, a scary statement yeah. that, that we have. It, yeah, it, I, to this day, 27 years later, after Cal's harm and becoming widowed when I was 42, it still just alarms me when people, this is normalized. And they talk about, data and statistics like it's nothing. These are real people. Yeah, I think that's I think that's a big part of it, but I also think our leadership has we've had a big change in leadership in our government and maybe in healthcare systems as well where money has been a driver and I think that has um deprioritized patient safety. 
And I think, you know, the pursuit of the bottom line has trumped safety. How does that say more about that? How do you think that the involvement of ever greater sums of money in healthcare? How do you think that interferes with patient safety? What's the consequence for harm? And I'll give you an example. I'll give you an example. When we were, Cal, having not got his Billy Rubin test, a Billy Rubin test costs a dollar. Yep. And a dollar. So when we were trying to, we moms and our healthcare agency all working all together, when we were trying to change the standard of care where all babies got a bilirubin test, that'd be 4 million babies a year. The pushback on it was going to cost too much was shocking. Shocking. Economists did these incredible projections how much it was going to cost. It was going to destroy your healthcare system if every baby got a bilirubin. The pushback was amazing, amazing on a dollar. So imagine everything else that ha- happens in healthcare. This bottom line, driving the bottom line over safety is the irony. Of course, is that we spend yeah. the irony. Of course, is that we spend that much on a single executive salary, and right. which is just right. right. That we'd lock newborns out of a necessary test that could save yeah. lives, change lives fundamentally for what is a few million, not that a few million dollars is nothing, but it's, it's not, it's a drop right. in the bucket. care now, just one case of Kernicterus. Kale's care now is in the multi-million dollars and he now is Medicaid, he is a dual. So Medicaid and Medicare now pays for his care for the rest of his life. Right. He's probably one of the most expensive customers at CMS. So um, just, just to, I want to go back to some fundamentals here for our listeners. Kernicterus is an awful problem and it uh, it's it can be stopped, but it is, after all, quite rare. When you now talk about patient safety, though, you have a much, much bigger field of view about what's going on. How big is the patient safety problem in your view? Yeah. How do you think about its size? That's a good question. Let me go back to Kernicterus being rare. We don't know how rare Kernicterus is. Let me go there because we do not collect, we don't have the right data to know the magnitude of harm. So that to me is really chilling as well. To learn that what happened to Cal, yes, considered rare. Do we really know the, do we really know how many cases of Kernicterus out there? I've recently learned, I hope I'm wrong, that right now no one is collecting data on children, newborns that suffer connectors. Our trigger tools don't capture it. Our government is not collecting it. I've been asking everybody this question, including the OIG, who is collecting data on children who suffer brain damage from jaundice? It's easy. It's You can collect the bilirubin level at 30. That was another event. It doesn't appear that's landing anywhere. And I hope somebody can tell me I'm wrong, but... Yeah, that's a turning on the lights issue without the data. That's a turning on the lights, yes. So the magnitude of harm... I don't think we have a good grasp on that. We've got lots of reports. We've got the OI, the Office of Inspector General saying one in a quarter of all Medicare patients experience harm. That's just Medicare. What about the rest of the population that gets healthcare from private insurance? I really fear that we have dramatically underestimated patient safety and the harm from patient safety because we simply don't have the mechanisms to collect the right information. We do have data that suggests systematic reviews of charts that the numbers of Americans that die from errors in their care is is more than tens of thousands, probably hundreds of thousands every every single year. As you've worked on this, Sue, and I want to hear a little more about patients for patient safety, if you take that forward. But this 
It's infuriating to hear your story, of course, a mother watching a child knowing something's wrong and not getting a response. And yet the world of safety is oriented around systems and system improvement. Is this bad people out there? Are we talking about incompetence and doctors who need who shouldn't be doctors or nurses who are just screwing up? Or have you come to think differently about why we have problems of this magnitude in a system that's supposed to be so good? I I came to learn very early on after both Cal's harm and losing my husband. The doctors weren't bad doctors. They could have been better doctors, but they weren't bad people. And they made mistakes, but the system wasn't there to catch the mistake. I did learn that. And my husband and I, even when my husband was still alive, we forgave his surgeon. We forgave. We we knew it was not intentional, but we the system could have been far much safer. In Cal's care case, there were no policies in place. They, the hospital had no jaundice management policies. There, the nurses had not had any continuing education. They went back 13 years to see if there was any education. So I understand that systems can be the systems improvement could be the solution. Now, I don't want to ignore that there are doctors that maybe should not be practicing. We need systems in place to to identify that. With the nurses, they could have been more proactive, I think. However, they were really prevented in this hierarchical system, which I witnessed. The nurse was trying to inform the doctor. The doctor kept saying, no, the baby's okay. Let the baby go. And so there was a kind of a tension between nurse doctor. And I, I know that there's challenges between a nurse challenging a doctor, and that needs to be addressed. So the system, and that's what we moms approached eliminating Kernicterus in the United States in a systems approach. We wanted a universal bilirubin test implemented in all hospitals, which it has been. And we wanted nurses to have the authority to take a bilirubin test, which is now part of the Joint Commission standard. We wanted parents to be better educated, which we are now not as well as I'd like to see. But so that systems-based approach, so it's not plucking out one doctor saying this was the problem. It was, here's the solution. And I think most patients now in the patient safety movement really embrace the systems-based approach for improvement. We don't want to look the other way, though, when it comes to responsibility. And we want to see when there are clinicians or nurses who could have done better, that that there is a responsible, they're held accountable, accountable in a way that improves what they're doing. Not many of us believe in quote, punishment. But we can't look the other way when people can become better. And we have to create those mechanisms to make them better. We, we can talk a lot more and perhaps we'll have you back to talk about the systems. You have plane, planes, the airplanes aren't safer today because pilots are trying harder. It's because right. there are real systems around them to, right. to protect them. And Don, uh, they also have somebody in charge of aviation. They have the FAA, they yeah. have the NTSB, which in healthcare, to this day, I still feel we do not have anybody in charge. Buck stops nowhere. Yeah. Okay, so we have, we're on this hour speed sped by, but let me ask you one question and turn it back over to Kadar. You've mentioned several times Patients for Patient Safety. This yes. is an organization that you've had a key role in in co-founding. Say a word about that. And some of our listeners actually may themselves, because of experiences or interests, want to get involved. Can you just tell us a little more right now about Patients for Patient Safety? Absolutely. So we started with 10 of us, all who experienced harm in healthcare. We organized, we very grassroots created our own website. We all had contacts in the healthcare system, including the two of you on this call that I reached out to. So we have grown from 10 to now over a hundred patients, family members. We have nurses and clinicians now joining our organization. 
We have strategic partnerships of which IHI and Lucian Leap Institute are both. We're working with all of our government agencies. And to everybody's credit, everybody has said, yes, let's work together. So I think that it's a very opportune time that we're recognizing that none of us alone can create a safer healthcare system that is going to take all of us collaborating so we have we have reached we have populated many boards and technical expert panels and advisory councils as done I'm on the PCAST and I represent a large community of patients there are the patient voice so there's a yeah, council of advisors and science sorry yes yes it has a working group on patient safety presidents the white house is apparently getting even more interested in this right now and sues on the advisory group assigned Correct. Correct. And so we are seeing a remarkable momentum and we can't take all the credit because I think that all of our partners collectively are creating this engine that's moving forward. We're formed under the WHO's Patients for Patient Safety, which is a program that's been around since 2004, 2005. So we not only are patients here in the United States, patients and family members and others, but we're connected to a network of over I don't even know how many, probably 400, 500 global champions where we all commit to partnership. We all commit to working together in partnership for positive improvement, which we hope to see. If one of our listeners wants to learn more about this, where should they go? Is Yeah, our website is efps.us, Patients for Patient Safety US. So if you Google us, I think you'll find us right away. There is a way to join us. There's a contact form as well as a join us form. So individuals can join us as champions. And the champions actually go through an orientation and a training that is helps them understand how we're organized under the WHO. WHO has a global patient safety action plan, which we're aligned under along with our national action plan. And also organizations can join us as a strategic partner. So Dude. we... Yeah, so you've you've started with Patients for Patient Safety. You're from that seat now. You've started to comment. You mentioned the President's Council just a moment ago on science and yeah. technology that you're a part of. The Department of Health and Human Services here in the U.S. has sought comment on a alliance for patient safety. If you can summarize it briefly for us, what is PFPS, what does Patients for Patient Safety want out of the future in this country for, right. for safety? Like I said, we'd like to see somebody in charge. Somebody, some entity has to be held accountable for reducing harm to patients. And right now we have this. So number one, we need somebody in charge. Number two, we need to understand the magnitude of harm. We need to do a better job of identifying harm, collecting data. We need our data to be transparent. We have a lot of data that's unavailable. Number one, get confidentiality clauses that I was to sign but wouldn't that we, that seals documents and it prevents people from talking about harm. So we need to open up. We need to eliminate gag clauses. We need to unleash the data, for example, in our patient safety organizations that are not being shared for learning purposes right now. Another thing is truth-telling. Truth-telling in the healthcare system is not, I should say that it's been accepted over the years when there is no truth-telling. We need to ensure that when there is harm, number one, patients are told about it. Patients could be involved in helping unravel what happened, that patients are informed when this is, when hospitals report this to either CMS or the state or the Joint Commission. But we need this truth-telling. We need this transparency in everything that happens in healthcare. So I frankly don't believe in any protected data unless the patient wants it. Right. And then the last and maybe the most important 
is that our system has been designed by politicians, by academia, by scientists, by technical experts, without major input from the patient community. And we are the receivers of care. So we embody so much knowledge to help transform our system that we would like to see at all levels, starting at the the presidential council level or commission level or the Department of Health and Human Services, that patients and families and communities, especially communities are, who are marginalized, they are not engaged in designing our system. Therefore, they get care that's inequitable. So if we were to bring it together, I'd like to use the term, if we were to democratize patient safety, bring in the voices of those who especially have experienced harm can, that can teach our healthcare system about solutions and closing closing some of those gaps. Let's, Those are the four areas. Democratizing patient safety, what an important message maybe to leave us on here. And I'm so glad that the president, that the department leadership in health and human services and others are listening to you, Sue, you specifically, as you try to bring your message to so many. We like to ask one last question whenever we're having one of these shows, which is about your outlook on the future of all of this. Do you feel optimistic about what's going to happen next in patient safety, or do you feel a bit of pessimism about it? What's what's your view of where we're headed? I am always a glass half full person. I would not be at this 27 years later, because there have been ups and downs and roadblocks and that. When I I first started this advocacy or activism when Cal was harmed and I went to a healthcare agency and I gave them my vision. And afterwards, the commentator referred to me as Pollyanna. And I have to tell you what, that um, not only did that, it made me angry, but I'm so glad they called me Pollyanna because it lit me on fire. And, and so it, because of that, it was like, you watch, I get frustrated. I get, I go through highs and lows, like all patients and families do, but I am very optimistic. I will always be optimistic because I believe in human beings. I believe in humanity. I believe that people will finally say, this is not okay. And so, yes, I'm optimistic. I'm optimistic. And also because doors are opening for patients and families and people are starting to think about outside of the box kind of thinking we can't do what we've done in the past. We simply can't. We have enough evidence to show us it hasn't worked. Let me encourage our listeners to watch Sue and her colleagues at Patient for Patient Safety join Patients for Patient Safety, whether you're an individual or an organization, if you believe in this effort, join them. I think we, we all should. And Sue, thank you for your courage, your determination, converting an incredibly tragic story into a story of hope and, as you say, glass half full and hopefully change for the future. Thank yeah. you, Sue Sheridan, for joining us here on Turn On The Lights. Thank you. Wow, that was an incredible moment there with Sue Sheridan. What a she's I think a hero for all of us in the world of patient safety for sure. But yeah, what did what do you think of that moment? Several moments of that. Dark. First, for a person to turn a tragedy so deep into motivation so strong in this kind of twenty-seven years of effort that now has marked Sue's career, you've got to take your hat off to that. And that's extraordinary. She, by the way, is not alone. I'm aware of a number of other patients and family members who have suffered very severe injuries in healthcare uh, who have turned that into intention and activism. And I think that's a great reservoir of energy for change. Sometimes I wonder, Kedar, if the system has enough energy in it to change itself. And I don't know, I think you need people from outside. I think you always need forces from the outside pushing to help shape 
what the direction ought to be. She suggested a change in the language around this, from advocacy to activism. Uh, And I thought that was an interesting pivot that she's embraced, this idea that it's not just enough to speak the truth. You have to act the truth they're seeing, which I thought was a pretty compelling notion. And my experience of Patients for Patient Safety is exactly that. They're acting it. They're not sitting on their hands here. And that's a good thing, I think, for the system. For patients to be that involved in the trajectory of the care system, I think that can only produce good things. Yeah, in my dreams, I hope that our listeners to this podcast series, Turn on the Lights, find ways to become activists of that type. I'm increasingly convinced it takes a Sue Sharon and someone from, out, some from, someone from outside the core status quo system to say, no, you can't, this can't continue. The, the Another piece I hear from Sue, who would not be furious if you had gone through what she has gone through? How could you not have listened to me? How could you not have watch the record more closely. So what did you think about that question? We hear about this a lot, Don, this idea that the system doesn't listen to people. The system, the health system, personified sometimes by a doctor or nurse or otherwise, but the system doesn't, isn't built in a way that allows the voice of the patient or family member to really influence the trajectory of care. We've heard this for ages. Do you see any possibility around this? In the future, I'm just I mean, the, here. We actually have, I think, science in other industries that tell us this is not the way to. It's not the way to achieve excellence, let alone be safe. I get on airplanes a lot, and it is not uncommon for me to hear the pilot before the flight takes off, huddling with the flight attendants and the galley in the front, and I hear the pilots look. If you notice anything that doesn't seem right, if you think I'm doing something wrong, if you think there's something I need to know please speak up. They're trained to do that. That's called crew resource management. It means you just use all of the knowledge and don't sector it off by hierarchy. And does that not because it's just nice to do, but because it saves airplanes. It stops crashes. And it's now it's universal in aviation safety. We've seen some experience with that in, in hospitals where surgeons are being trained to stop before you do the surgery and say, okay, everybody, What's this operation? Have I got the correct part? Are we all set? And if you notice I'm doing anything that concerns you, speak up. So it's not common, but it is making its way in. The next extension of that that Sue Sheridan models is the patient is an active voice. I would even say, may I hazard to say the leading voice in the or in in the pursuit of excellence and care, including safety. Patients need and family members need to be encouraged. To, to speak up readily about anything they're seeing that they're concerned about. And if they can't get an answer that's understandable, but they haven't stopped, they haven't gotten an answer yet. And that's a culture change. So I remember the, the campaign in the subways in New York that happened after 9-11 when people everywhere was plastered this message of when you see something, say something. It's still present, I think, everywhere. But I wonder why that hasn't stuck in healthcare. If you see something that doesn't feel right, that there's something a little bit anomalous about the circumstance or environment, say something about it. Or I think that's a, maybe a hope, I hope a message that our audience will take away from this particular show. I think got, it can change. We've got white coats and long degrees and Greek words and a lot of opacity in the way. But if we could change that culture, we'd all be safer. Yeah. I think it can happen, but it's going to take some real leadership and some, to use his term, um, yeah, real activism. Activism. This is, by the way, just for the record, a really big problem. The number of people being injured by errors in care. And I believe, I personally believe it's not the fault of the workforce at all. Doctors and nurses are trying really hard. If I recall correctly, Don, there was a study done by Hopkins not long ago that cited medical error, this phenomenon that we're talking about here, as the third leading cause of death behind cancer, 
and heart disease. The third leading cause of death in American hospitals. It's big. It's big. And and we need to stop it, but it's not going to happen by accident. We're going to have to plan our way into that and, and really make the changes. The changes they made are not blaming the workforce. I'll tell you that I don't yeah, think yelling harder at docs and nurses is going to make a difference. It's, they're not causing it. They're, they're trying to stop it. It has to do with getting back to building systems that are safe. And that there is a place where that buck stops, in my view. That's the executive suite and the board of trustees. If a board of trustees in American healthcare isn't talking about safety all the time at every meeting, they're not doing their job. Don, thanks so much. It's great to be with you. Great to have this conversation. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Turn on the Lights, where we're trying to shed light on the thorniest problems and the most innovative solutions in healthcare. We'd like to help you understand. To listen to more episodes or find the show notes and other resources, please visit us at IHI.org. Thank you.